Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, calling in from Michigan, is my friend, Dr. Taylor Petrie. Welcome to the podcast, Taylor. Richard, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. Uh, Just by background, um, Taylor, I'm going to call him Taylor through the rest of the podcast, even though he is Dr. Petrie to many has a doctorate in New Testament and early Christianity from Harvard Divinity School and is now an associate professor at Kalamazoo College in Michigan. And um, he has written a book that we're going to talk about called Tabernacles of Clay, Sexuality and Gender in Modern Mormonism. And for our listeners, I haven't had a chance to read this book. I like to read every book before doing a podcast, but that's become impossible these days. But I Uh, follow Taylor on Twitter and social media. And uh, a lot of my LGBTQ friends um, have read this book and have commented on social media how much it's helped them. Many of those are active Latter-day Saints. And I like any book or any um, ally that stepped in this space that writes things that bring hope and healing, particularly to LGBTQ people who are walking a really difficult road and also to helpful for me as an ally. So I better have, I have better tools and a better perspective to lift their burden versus saying something that could potentially add to their burden. So we're going to focus on Taylor's book and um, a little bit about why he wrote it and what sections he wants that are important to him and, and things that he feels would be listen helpful for our listeners. Um, But Taylor, it's, it's June. And when I think of Michigan, I think of um, tell us just how beautiful it is in, outside where you live right now. It's the absolute perfect time of the year here. I love it. I live uh, probably about 40 minutes from the beach, and uh, we try to make it out there pretty regularly. But I also live on a small lake here in Michigan, and I'm looking out my window at the sun just kind of getting a little lower in the sky and beautiful trees and listening water. It's great. Beautiful time of year here. What a great time of year. Um, Love Michigan. Tell us, um, for our listeners, um, Taylor grew up in South Jordan. He's in his early 40s. He served a mission in Italy. He's a member in good standing. Um, He, um, I don't know where you were to go through your education, just to introduce yourself um, to our listeners. Yeah. Oh, it's a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Uh, you know, when you're in school for 15 years after, <laughs> you know, high school, it's a, it, it can be a long time, but I'll keep it, I'll keep it brief. I um, graduated from Bingham High School in South Jordan, and I went off to New York City to Pace University to, uh, uh, to be on a debate scholarship out there. Um, I went on a mission after my first year and came back and uh, studied a lot of uh, uh, of the Bible and, and the scriptures on my mission and thought, you know, this is this would be fun to just keep doing the rest of my life. And I took a religion class at Kalamazoo, or sorry, at Peace University, and just fell in love and thought, oh, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. And um, I've been very fortunate then. I, I went to Harvard Divinity School, as you mentioned, for a master's in theological studies and then a doctorate in theology focusing on New Testament and early Christianity, and um, then uh, have ended up at Kalamazoo College uh, as a professor here. And uh, yeah, that's the the brief version of the story, but we can get into more details if there's more that you want, but that's the kind of general outline. What a 
what a wonderful journey and um, really admire what you've done. What a interesting experience to be at Harvard Divinity School. As we traded messages today, I mentioned that our daughter um, has been accepted to Harvard Divinity School. She graduated from BYU. She starts there in the fall. And I'm just so excited for her to have that experience. And how many years were you there, Taylor? And just share with our listeners what it's like to go to Harvard Divinity School. Yeah. So I, I remember thinking I must have been pretty fancy to be a Latter-day Saint at Harvard Divinity School. And after getting there, I, I was fortunate to meet a cohort of other LDS students who were there, some of whom are my best friends to this day. We spent a lot of time together. Um, and I also did the history of Latter-day Saints at Harvard Divinity School, um, going back to the 70s, where um, they first started accepting Latter-day Saints. And one of the uh, there were a bunch of, uh, of important people who have gone there who have written amazing things, but probably the most prominent was um, Phil Barlow, who's um, uh, a, a big Latter-day Saint academic and is now at uh, BYU's Maxwell Institute. And then there was a long gap of people who did doctorates there. I was the next one uh, almost 30 years later. Wow. <laughs> it took a long time. Um but uh, the Divinity School is situated in the broader context of Harvard, and there are other places to study religion at Harvard that, that will overlap with the Divinity School but aren't exclusively there necessarily either. And so, for instance, I worked in the, in the, the main body of, the, of Harvard for a number of years while I was there, both uh, uh, as a teaching assistant and then later in an in a administrative position. So um, it connects. To its, its mission originally is uh, connected to Unitarian Universalism as a sort of main denomination that, uh, that was affiliated with the school. But as a result of that sort of broad vision of Unitarian Universalism, it's always been a multi-religious institution. And so I got to study with people uh, from all over the world and all, every single religious tradition there. And um, also was very fortunate to have so many excellent experts in my particular subfield of early Christianity. And I focused on gender studies while I was there, too. And Harvard happens to be um, not only one of the strongest places, but one of the founders of gender studies and religion, um, going back to uh, uh, feminism's um, rise in the 1970s. Also, they were an early um, adopter of uh, sort of promoting this scholarship. And uh, I just was like a kid in a candy store there. I spent um, two years in a, as a master's student, and then I worked there for a year, and then I started a doctoral program there that uh, took me six years. So I was there for a total of nine years as a student, and then I was very, very fortunate a couple of years ago to be um, accepted in the Women's Studies and Religion program that the Divinity School uh, runs. Uh, and I came back for a year as a visiting assistant professor, visiting associate professor, and a research uh, fellow at the Women's Studies and Religion program. And that was uh, where I actually did the research for the Tabernacles of Clay book that's now uh, that's now out. So I've got a lot of uh, deep roots at Harvard, and um, have really loved it there. And of course now. Uh, you know, they are, they continue to accept Latter-day Saint students. Sorry, I'm just like geeking out on this part, but um, David Holland, Elder Holland's son, is a professor there and is the first LDS professor uh, uh, there. And he's been there for, I think, about six years now or so. So um, anyway, yeah, it's a great, it's a great place. And it's uh, a really wonderful place to be as a Latter-day Saint, I think. 
That's really cool. And as I connect, and you're obviously probably really well connected with younger students that are considering where to go, I sense there's um, other BYU students and other students at other undergraduate universities that are LDS that are drawn to Harvard Divinity School and the broad um, understanding about other religions. That's certainly the way our daughter is wired and many are wired. And what a wonderful opportunity and what a um, wonderful um, experience. And then to come back and teach, tell our listeners, um, I assume, and, you know, I'm not an academic person, so I'm always struggling with vocabulary and wording, but I, I assume in that six years to be get to earn your doctorate, you had to do a dissertation or a thesis. If so, share with our listeners what the focus was. Sure. Yeah. Uh, in that six years, I had to pass, I think, seven foreign language exams. And uh, then I had to do general examinations uh, in my field where uh, my professors would ask questions and I would have two hours to write as much as I possibly could answering that question to demonstrate that I had competency in it. And then the next stage is then you write a dissertation. My dissertation uh, was about um, second and third century Christian debates about gender in the resurrection. And I found all of these fascinating texts where Christians were arguing among themselves about what our resurrected bodies are actually like and whether or not they would have genitals. And if they would have genitals, why they needed to have genitals, since they obviously wouldn't work <laughs> anymore. Um, and as a Latter-day Saint, I was struck by this debate uh, as, as one that maybe was operating on some different assumptions, whereas I think many of my peers didn't really notice that anybody, that this was a big topic of conversation. They just sort of took it for granted. Yes, that's obvious. But I said, this is really interesting how they're imagining the afterlife, how they're thinking about bodies, how they're defining gender and sexuality as it relates to bodies. And um, so uh, that was my dissertation and then ultimately became my first book, which uh, came out about five years ago or so now, um, which is called Resurrecting Parts, Early Christians on Reproduction, Desire, and Sexual Difference. That's fascinating. Um, and I realized... It was a lot of fun. I realize there's a lot that I don't know about the resurrection. I think Elder Oaks, even in the last conference, talked about there's a lot we don't know about the resurrection quoting a BYU professor who made that statement. So, um, and I assume that you've found some really good content that helps us understand more. And that's part of that first book you wrote. So thank you for your work. Um, yeah, of course. What an interesting world and interesting questions. I'm going to ask another question. When I hear you talked about a focus on gender studies, um, gender means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, you know, I would think first of male versus female, and I probably shouldn't even use versus, just male and female. But also sometimes we've used that word to describe um, gay people, um, sort of gender tied in with sexuality, which I'm trying to do less of. Any just help you can give us on definition and using those terms appropriately? <laughs> Great question. This is a lot of what the field is about, too, is trying to untangle what exactly that, that means. Um, so let, I'll get, let me give a little overview to, to the field and, and, and as a roundabout way of answering the question, and then Good. if there's more that you want to dig into, feel free. But um, the field as it is now, and I use gender as a sort of shorthand to describe it, but originally emerges um, in, uh, as part of the feminist movement as, a, as women's studies. 
And the women's studies um, field was really in reaction to the kind of mainstream academic uh, field, which really just focused on men. Men were who you read. That was what the canon was. They were the people who had done all the historical great deeds and so on. And, um, you know, the sort of biases of scholars and scholarship had just ignored then women's history and women's, uh, women's contributions and so on. And uh, so, you know, obviously in history, in literature, these were big, um, big kind of challenges to the dominant structures of, of those fields, and as well as in religious studies in my, in my field. Uh, people then kind of began to expand that a little bit uh, with, uh, with gay and lesbian studies, thinking about the, the relationship of sexuality as a, also an area of historical interest um, and uh, of literary interest as well, and of course, religious interest. And, and that then also further expands to the question of, uh, of also including men and men's studies and masculinity studies which aren't huge fields, but are, um, you know, uh, sort of have, have, have arisen as a part of this broader conversation. And so now often you'll hear departments or areas of study called women, women, gender, and sexuality studies. Um, that is a kind of amalgamation of these various, uh, uh, various academic movements um, that have attempted to kind of, again, retell the broader story of, the, of all of the subfields but often focus on one particular lens uh, on that. So in terms of gender, what people mean by that is in an academic context, it, it certainly then refers to the, construct, the social construction of the differences between men and women, masculinity and femininity, and certainly also includes the ways in which sexuality uh, is gendered in particular ways um, that, uh, you know, um, stereotypically, you know, that uh, it's feminine to desire in this way or it's masculine to desire in that way. And so the interrelationship of, of all of those things is a big part of the way that gender studies operates. And, of course, we could even expand it as a number of people do and as I do in this book to think about the ways that, um, that race is also a big part of the way that we talk about gender and sexuality um, as well. And, and we can come back to that particular point. But uh, yeah, it's, it, it does, it's not that there's a, like a one-line definition. It sort of is the kinds of questions that people are looking at that fall under that umbrella. That's helpful. Thank you. Talk about your book. Um, just maybe um, why you decided to write it. And for our listeners that aren't familiar with it, just introduce your book f to us. Yeah. So the book, uh, Tabernacles of Clay, it, it, uh, as I mentioned, I wrote it while I was um, on sabbatical and uh, spending a year at Harvard as visiting a professor there and uh, doing the research for, for that book. And when I had originally pitched it and proposed it um, as a proposal to go and do the research there, I thought I would really tell the story of Mormonism and its relationship to these topics kind of from the beginning to the end and uh, start with Joseph Smith and think about polygamy and think about, um, you know, the, the transitions then to monogamy and so on. That was my original idea. And as I got into the research and started getting into this more and feeling out the, the questions that I had myself and, and the gaps that I was seeing in the research that had been done up until that point, I realized that 
so much of the story was really of my parents and, and, and to a certain extent, my grandparents' generation, um, starting with a World War II up until the modern period, where so many important changes had happened and the church um, uh, uh, both was solidifying the teachings that it has today relative to, to previous eras and really making dramatic changes during that same time period as well. I think everybody kind of thought, as I, as I did sort of naively, that the church is relatively stable, that it doesn't hasn't changed its teachings too much. And I was quite surprised when I started to look at it at just how much had changed. And that, that history and telling that history from World War II to, to the present stuck, struck me as a story which we need to know, the history that we need to know to think about what the present means, and also uh, had, a, for me, a number of incredibly powerful lessons about the possibilities of change uh, as well that the church, uh, that, that, that we might think about uh, in the church. So that was the kind of um, the sort of genesis of why I started writing the book and then how I came about, and a little bit of the overview of, uh, of what it looks at. It's a historical study. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll say one other part about that, too, because when I first started thinking about these issues, really in graduate school, um, I was coming at them from, uh, from the lens of, uh, of the sort of historical work that I was doing in early Christianity and thinking historically but when I started thinking about Latter-day Saint thought, um, theology for me was a really important lens for thinking about gender and sexuality. And so when I first started writing about gender and sexuality in the church, it was really from the perspective of theology. And there had been a lot that had been said about um, the kind of pastoral work that, that you do and that, that so many other people have done in, in the past. And I thought that is such important work. It's really important, but we really need to be thinking about the, the theological issues that are at stake here, because that seemed to be where um, the debates around same-sex marriage just kept getting caught up. Is well, the theology is X, Y, and Z. So I tried to first sort of reimagine what the theology would do, and I wrote an article in 2011 about um, called "Towards a Post-Heterosexual Mormon Theology." That was my first sort of foray into into this question. But in the ensuing years, I felt like we didn't really know the history. And I kept waiting for somebody else to tell the history of, of LDS teachings on gender and sexuality. And um, people had done a little bit here and there, but I, I just always found it a really dissatisfying and thought there's so much more to this story. And so um, I decided that in addition to theology, I'll also try to master the history and, uh, and to tell, tell the story as I, as I understood it. And that's the sort of background of this book. So um, that's what you can expect when you when you if you open it up is uh, a historical account. And just talk to us. I don't know if it's divided into sections, Taylor, or how many chapters there are. Yeah. I can't remember. Um, just give an overview of that way of what a reader would expect to to read. Yeah, I well, I start in the 1950s and 60s with debates over interracial marriage in the church and, uh, and again, sort of situating the ways that Latter-day Saints talked and thought about race as really a sexual problem. Um, they were segregationists for the most part and were uh, uh, very concerned about um, the potential for interracial marriage. 
And uh, so I try to tell that story as a part of the history of LDS teachings on marriage itself that regulated who's allowed to marry who. Who, what, what are the, what are the, you know, what are the, the rules around who gets to marry? And race was a really, really big factor, um, and now it's not, right? And, 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 and so I wanted to understand, well, what happened there? And it wasn't just the 1978 revelation on the priesthood. There were a number of other intervening factors, most of which have nothing to do with a, a grand revelation that sort of weakened that um, segregationist uh, impulse that church leaders had and eventually uh, led to changes in the, in the social and really ecclesiastical rules around who was allowed to marry who and what the consequences of that were. Um, so I start there, and then I move to telling the history of how Latter-day Saint leaders have thought about homosexuality. And I, I tell this story in a little bit different way than other people have told it up until this point, where um, people have sort of assumed that there's some stable thing that's called homosexuality that has always existed. Uh, and I try to say, no, actually, homosexuality, when church leaders start thinking about it, they think about it in a new terminology and in a new ways as a psychological disorder starting in the 1950s. And that tracks with a broader American sort of consciousness and awareness of homosexuality during that period. And church leaders are, are reading and drawing on those same broader cultural constructs for thinking about something new. Uh, and, and it's the period that I call the invention of homosexuality and Mormonism, um, when church leaders start to kind of psychologize this in such a way that they then are developing psychological treatments and uh, various uh, ways of, of monitoring people and of sort of thinking of bishops as counselors, as, as psychologists and so on. So I try to tell the, the story uh, uh, really through the lens of psychology during that time period as well. Um, then I look at the politics, uh, which is another new practice that the church undertakes during this time period. Um, they are engaged in some anti-homosexuality politics, like supporting anti-sodomy laws, for instance, in the 1970s. But the biggest issue that they undertake is the, uh, the politicization of the church over the Equal Rights Amendment, um, which was uh, uh, attempted to establish equality between men and women on, under the law uh, as a constitutional amendment, if people aren't familiar with what the Equal Rights Amendment is. And um, the church was one of the major actors in trying to prevent that uh, uh, law from passing. And um, it was both a kind of anti-feminist uh, concern that, um, that uh, women would go to work in the workplace, and if they did that, then they would become lesbians, is what their church leaders are explicitly saying during that time period. And interestingly, they're also opposing it because they said this is going to lead to same-sex marriage. And so their opposition to feminism was really rooted in an opposition to homosexuality as well during that time period. So I tried to talk about the kind of preaching campaigns that the church leaders are undertaking, the psychological um, engagement that they're, that they're working on, and even the establishment of things like LDS social services as a, a, having a psychological arm to it. And then the third, the third area I look at is the politics. And I try to trace out those three um, interrelated elements of church teachings on these issues up to the present day, up to President Nelson's, uh, I think, the end of his first year as, uh, as uh, president of the church.
um, to try to, you know, again, to trace that history out up through Prop 8 and up through um, the rise and fall of things like reparative therapy in the church and uh, and certainly the um, the ways that church leaders have, have evolved on their doctrinal teachings on the nature of sexuality, the nature of, uh, of sexual difference between men and women, and of course, race as well. That's fascinating for me. I've never thought of how these separate topics, um, our history with race and interracial marriage, the Equal Rights Amendment, um, and, you know, gay and lesbian issues are all connected the way you've just described it. It's really interesting. Um, so that was one of the challenges that I had had with previous studies, you know, as I mentioned, like the sort of women's studies and women's history, which is a well-established field in, in um, LDS uh, historical accounts now. And then gay and lesbian history was its own thing off in the corner over here. And then racial history was another thing. And I said, these are all interrelated. We've got to be telling this as, a, as an organic story together rather than um, as, as three separate stories, because they're all intertwined. And so uh, thanks, thanks for noticing that. But um, that's, yeah, that's one of the big contributions that I hope that the book makes is to help us see the ways that these are not uh, separate, but, but connected. Um, I have a question that I text um, one of our joint fr friends from Twitter, Cal Burke, who's a gay Latter-day student at BYU, great young man. And I said, Cal, I've got um, Taylor Petrie on the podcast. Do you have any questions you want me to ask him? And he's, of course, loves your book. And <laughs> he did send in a question. Um, let me see. if it, You talk in your book about the way our church's original involvement in political marriage debates had to do mostly with preventing interracial marriage. Why was that important to the church in the beginning and how did that change? And you've kind of touched on that, but anything more you want to say to answer Cal's question? Yeah, if I, if I understand it, um, uh, yeah, I think it's a great, it's a great question. I think that the, why I wanted to start the story there was um, because it's such a powerful example of the way that the church has changed its teachings on marriage specifically. And, you know, I, I think that the way that a lot of people have thought, have thought about the, the lens of LDS teachings of, on race has been through the lens of priesthood ordination, which is certainly a major part of uh, why church leaders were concerned with maintaining a segregated marriage. Um, was to, in order to preserve priesthood, but it wasn't exclusively. That wasn't the reason why Latter-day Saints were discouraged from marrying Native Americans, for instance, or Polynesians, for instance. Um, and so I, I wanted to show the ways in which LDS teachings on race were really about marriage, and therefore the LDS teachings about marriage were really about race. And um, uh, in order to illuminate the dramatic ways that LDS teachings about marriage of who gets to marry who, uh, who gets to marry whom, are uh, have really been in quite dramatic flux in in these years. Why does it go away? Well, I think it goes away for many of the same reasons that it appeared in the first place. It was a part of the broader kind of uh, uh, conservative American landscape were segregationists, you know, and and so segregation. Um, was a big part of the way that LDS leaders thought about themselves as Americans and as belonging to a kind of conservative, a conservative America. 
as those ideas became more and more socially unacceptable, the church leaders themselves, who were also then growing up in a generation in which those ideas were embarrassing to hold on to, uh, church leaders themselves were comfortable with redefining the church's teachings on race. And they stopped kind of repeating some of the old racist doctrines. They stopped even thinking in terms of race as these racial categories. I mean, we used to say, you know, these people are, are destined for X, Y, and Z because of their race. And these people are destined for X, Y, you know, we used to think in these highly racialized terms. And then all those teachings just kind of disappeared. And um, uh, so, so trying to tell that story was important for me to understand LDS teachings on marriage today as perhaps, again, I, I'm not arguing for change in the book. Um, this is a historical account, but I think there's an implicit argument that, um, that church teachings on race have changed within my own lifetime on this issue. And why not on something else as well, right? That's helpful. How, you know, um, there's a lot of um, active Latter-day Saints that become aware of our history, and it can generate sort of a faith crisis as they recognize some of the things we taught that we don't longer teach regarding the issues you're talking about or polygamy. And and how, as people reach out to you, as you, any advice to those that sort of say, I want to stay in this church and I recognize that we've just said things in the past that are unsettling to me or things that just aren't true. And our leaders didn't always speak with a full understanding. Any advice for any listeners, just how to navigate all that. Yeah. I, I think that everybody needs to, every person of faith needs to confront these issues, you know, and, and we have it certainly in our church. Uh, you know, I, I, I teach about biblical studies, and you can't read the Bible closely without coming away very disturbed about a lot of the things that are in there, too. And so we have that kind of crisis of trust, crisis of authority um, in in uh, our, our canon, in our leaders, in our history. And, you know, some of that is just naivety on our part uh, that, that we need to overcome because, of course, the past is complicated. Of course, our religious texts are going to be complicated. They're going to be imperfect. But the other side of it, for me at least, as, as somebody who is, is, uh, considers myself a person of faith, is I also see in this ugly past a possibility for redemption, too, because we do change, we do grow, we do correct past mistakes, not to say that we are perfect now or that we have corrected all past mistakes by no means. But um, but it's also I, I think for me I like to look and, and see the uh, the positive where the church has uh, um, been able to fix some of the problems that it has. We are, like I said before, it's not to say that that we have solved our issues on race anymore, but we certainly don't talk like we did 50 years ago or or, or 70 years ago. Um, and so I see I see in history a an optimistic story as well. Um, and I think that going over some of these, for me, it was a painful book to write at some point. I was, I, I, it was hard to read the way that church leaders talked about all, all of these issues that we've mentioned. Um, and as somebody who's sympathetic to all of those, uh, to, to all of those issues. And, um, but at the same time, I wanted to say, say well, I, I see possibilities for growth, for change. And as a church that hopefully is um, 
uh, founded on on continuing revelation, as 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 I believe that we are. I think that there is also again a sort of mechanisms for continuing to to work to change. Again, I don't expect institute. I belong to a lot of institutions. I belong to, to academia. I belong to, of course, a church. I belong to an American society. All of these institutions are broken in some way, and sometimes deeply, deeply broken. The things that we need to address and fix. And uh, and for me, I see myself as being a, try to be a part of the solutions and not part of the problem. Try to educate myself. Try to do the work that that, that I can to make things better. And uh, and to see that as a lifelong project, also. So I try not to, for me again, to give up on things too quickly. But I certainly understand people who do, and I, I, I you know, there are really good reasons that people have to have a faith crisis sometimes, and I, I um, understand those. And there are, you know, personal reasons that people have conflicts that people have um, with their with their life, with their families, and so on that influence those decisions. And so I, I don't I don't mean to judge people, but just for my own story, um, that's how I've kind of uh, approached these these issues. Thank you. Uh, more about your book you want to share? Oh, let's see. And one potential is just real, so, any thoughts about our transgender yeah, friends that feel this gender dysphoria? Any thought? I don't know if the book got into that as part of gender. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I deal with, again, it's a historical book, so I'm trying to tell the history of, of trans issues in the church. Um, there are uh, a number of sections that, that touch on the, the way that church leaders have talked about trans issues and uh, up through the present. And I did have a Salt Lake Tribune article, by the way, when the church came out in, um, I think it was February or March or so, and had uh, updated the church handbook on transgender issues. Uh, that I that I uh, wrote about that. If people want to Google that, um, if they're interested in reading more, but um, yeah, I I I try to where where I think one of the main what I think one of the main theses of the book is is that um, church teachings have often been presented as a species of what's called gender essentialism. That is this idea of a kind of fixed, natural binary between male and female. And what I try to show is that that is uh, the way that church leaders talking about gender essentialism actually reveals a deep anxiety that gender itself is actually highly fluid and that sexuality is highly fluid. And so I try to sort of focus on the ways in which church teachings are actually not based on gender essentialism, but are actually based on gender fluidity as the kind of um, basis or what, you know, to use a fancy technical word, the ontology of sexual difference. What is sexual difference? Is it fixed? No, church leaders have been very worried that it's, it's highly fluid and that without strong um, social, legal, and ecclesiastical pressures to maintain the differences between male and female. The differences between male and female will inevitably become blurry and fuzzy. And, um, and so in that, I, I see, again, like a, a little gap, a little window there that we could open up a little bit more to see that um, uh, trans I issues and, and trans identity is 
perfect fits in perfectly with church teachings, not in just a, in terms of a kind of spirit and body and these sometimes some kind of old-fashioned ways that we have talked about transgender issues, but really just the idea that male and female themselves are socially constructed categories that are open to change. And, um, and uh, uh, so I try to focus a little bit on, on the, the possibilities of actually starting from gender fluidity as the basis of church teachings, rather than, I think, a false understanding of what it's all about of, of, in gender essentialism. Um, talk, I think you've already defined this, but you're giving me some new vocabulary that's helpful. Gender essentialism, just go over that again, Taylor. Yeah, so so gender essentialism is um, uh, the idea that, that, that uh, male and female are sort of fixed in their differences, right? Um, that uh, that uh, the biology is is destiny, right? Uh, that that uh, uh, your 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 biological birth, sex, that's who you are, and that's what you are, and that says everything that you ever need to know about about you, right? And that it actually can't be changed, or if it is being changed, then you're going, you're fighting against nature in some way. And that's been the common way that, that many people have understood what LDS teachings are all about, in part because the proclamation on the family uses this term, that gender is an essential characteristic of, of eternal identity, or I forget the, the next lines after that. Gender is an essential characteristic. So it sort of is drawing on the philosophical category of gender essentialism to sort of express itself. Um, at the same time, then gender fluidity says no, it's not a socially, it's not a, a natural category. Gender is not a natural category; it's a socially constructed category, uh, and there are various understandings of how far one takes that, right? Um, what, how far social construction actually goes? But, uh, but uh, gender fluidity then, in contrast, says that um, male and female are are um, not natural categories, that biology is not destiny, but rather that there's one is uh, socially constructed. And that social construction then means that we can change it too. If we want to say women uh, aren't allowed to go to work any, or aren't, uh, aren't allowed to go to work, that's not some expression of natural teachings as the church once taught, um, but that's a social teaching that we can change. And when we do change it, it turns out it's more or less just fine. You know, the world did not fall apart as, as everybody thought it would if women suddenly were able to be fighter pilots or doctors or lawyers or whatever. Um, and so, uh, so, so that, that notion of gender fluidity then opens up the possibilities of challenging some of the cultural assumptions that we might bring to gender roles, to sexual roles, to uh, uh, things along those lines. Does that help? That does. And um Tell, then there's sort of, it feels like a next step to gender dysphoria, where there's actually this pain of a mismatch or this feeling that how I identify, it doesn't match my biological sex. So before you answer that, I realized that even as my wife and I got married, um, I took on some roles just because I enjoyed doing the laundry that might socially constructed be a, my wife's responsibility. But I've just always, it's therapy for me somehow to get the hot clothes out of the dryer and fold them. And there's no reason that that should be something that a woman does or a man does. Um, so I found that some of those social construction, maybe that's a poor example, 
and it's showing some of my own biases, but I just find that there are things like that, that um, we sort of had these roles growing up. I'm 59 that um, my wife and I don't necessarily follow today as we just sort of found our own way, but that's, but then talk about this dysphoria, this pain of the mismatch that's, and anything you want to comment on just what I said. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that the issues of your generation that were very intensely focused on household chores and which yeah. ones were the male ones, exactly. which ones were the female ones. And there's all this anxiety about it, you know, like can women mow the lawn, right? Was was the other the flip side of that, right? Um, and, and and those debates for younger generations, were, you know, and again, my parents, I grew up in in my parents had. Uh, not rigid gender roles and maybe some unexpected ones too. And so of course, I just thought these are ridiculous. What are we focusing on? <laughs> Household chores is the big things that say who's male and female. And now of course the, the conversations are much more um, advanced and we've taken, taken them even further. In terms of trans identity, um, I think that we are in a really interesting moment for uh, for thinking through these things because there's been big, big cultural shifts, big transitions in our own culture about um, uh, the the legitimacy uh, of this and sort of raising these things to sort of national consciousness. The last decade really has been incredibly illuminating for bringing these issues into national conversation, and now you've got you know trans rights activists that are. Um, really in coalition with all of these other groups. And, uh, and I think that we're kind of still working out what, not not in terms of, uh, of uh, le the legitimacy of trans identity, which I don't question at all, but still working out a little bit about its, um, what its larger significance is going to be for, uh, for culture. And some of these interesting debates that are happening among uh, really sometimes some really regressive kinds of uh, a feminist uh, discourse around anti-trans uh, 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 approaches to feminism have expressed some interest. Uh, I say this because J.K. Rowling, for instance, the author of the Harry Potter series and others, uh, you know, has sort of come out as an opponent of, uh, of transitioning. And um, I, I think that these issues are really going to be, uh, we're going to have a lot more to talk about and think about. And one of the reasons why is because people are transitioning at much younger ages than they used to. Um, I have a friend who actually happens to be a plastic surgeon that specializes in, in trans surgery. And I had a fascinating conversation with her about this. She said, you know, 15 years ago, my typical client was, you know, a, a male in his 40s. And now my typical client is a, a, a teenage, uh, male, uh, a mostly female to male transition in between 15 and 25. And so just even within these communities, there are big upheavals about who, who belongs and, and the kinds of things that are happening. And so I'm fascinated as an outside observer, I'm fascinated in kind of watching how these uh, things develop. I'm a little bit skeptical of the language of psychology, that the, the terms of gender dysphoria, for instance, as um, the kind of best way of thinking about it, because it still kind of classifies it in um, uh, as a kind of psychological aberration. And I'm much more likely to think that it's a much more common uh, thing, and then probably even still our culture has, has, has worked out. I think that 
that many people um, probably don't fully identify if we want to think about the, the kind of polarity between the stereotypical masculine male and the stereotypical feminine female. I think many people don't really identify on, on, uh, on those poles, and a lot of people might see themselves as somehow uh, in the middle, and probably even a lot more than even now are coming out at, at these younger ages as trans, as genderqueer. Um, and so I, I think that I think that well, we, we're going to still be wrestling with this issue as we as we continue to think about it more. Um, so that's a long, rambly answer. It's a good but, answer. Uh, I'm I'm fascinated to watch it. I love the your framework. I'm fascinated to watch it. That I mean, the the thing you're sort of saying there is that there's a lot to learn and a lot of growth that's going to occur in that space, and we can better more better. Um, comfort. I like your point about gender dysphoria um, and wondering if that term will stick, I think is what you inferred as we sort of shift this out. And I didn't, you didn't quite, I think what you kind of said is sort of a mental disorder to a physiological understanding of why someone feels that way. Is that true? Am I saying what you said correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I think that you know, in part, the language of psychology, and I try to tell this history in the book a little bit, is useful for um, breaking apart the unity of the human being. You know, a psychological approach says that your identity comes from a set of mental, uh, sort of set of mental frameworks, not uh, uh, your, your body, your material body. And so, going all the way back to Freud, there's a, there's a sort of identification that um, that the kinds of work that's happening in the mind and the body itself are not connected, you know, or at least uh, uh, sort of um, uh, contingent, uh, uh, contingently connected in some way. And so, I think that the language of psychology does help us to break apart thinking of bodies as somehow being determinative of what gender is. At the same time, a lot of psychology was rooted in kind of setting up what is, quote unquote, the norm. And then the people who deviated from the norm were, uh, you know, needed to be fixed in some way or needed to be categorized in some way. And where I think I would want to challenge that a little bit is, is just instead of seeing trans identity as something which is abnormal or which is outside of the norm or is dysphoric, is actually being deeply normal. And that uh, the, the, the normalcy of that is, I think, something that we're going to see more and more of um, as, people, um, as people sort of have the freedom and the possibility to, to sort of locate themselves within, uh, uh, within a kind of um, either non-gendered or gender transitioned or, or sort of just, as I mentioned before, sort of gender queer. I'm seeing that a lot more among younger generations than my students, for instance. Um, and so, uh, so, so I want to kind of, instead of applying the sort of abnormalcy, the kind of normative work that psychology sometimes does, I'm actually kind of interested in recuperating psychology to think about these things as deeply normal, too. That's interesting. Um, I'm just thinking uh, in my mind this, you know, I'm thinking back to the roles my wife and I assume I had a church job at a period of time and would come home just in time for Sunday dinner. My wife then started barbecuing. <laughs> um, and she continues to barbecue. I don't have a church job on Sunday that keeps me. And so 
I'm realizing that I love to do the laundry and she loves to barbecue and neither of us are <laughs> particularly bothered by that. Neither of us are, are gender queer, obviously, or trans. We're just assuming gender, um, more gender roles that fit with our construct in our marriage. Um, so I think yeah. I'm hearing kind of two categories. One is just societal or cultural constructed gender roles, which as we, I would say, mature as a society, we um, give more freedom for people to assume the roles that they like to assume and feel natural to them. And then there's sort of this other, I I'm hope I'm not simplifying too much, there's this other group of people that feel just this mismatch or this deep pain. Um, yeah. Just a story about that pain I was thinking about this morning, an LDS mother of a transgender child described it to me as, so I could relate to it because I don't feel any of that pain is like being car sick and just the, the tremendous pain of being stuck mm -hmm. in a car and car sick and wanting to do anything to relieve that pain. And all of us that have driven a car have been in a car, have been felt car sick and we, we don't like that. And we want to do anything yeah. we can to end that pain. And she talked about, imagine my son who's felt this gender dysphoria for five years and can't get out of the car. And then on my walk this morning, I was thinking about how would you just, because I can't describe gender dysphoria to anybody, um, but it's sort of like describing somebody that's car sick to someone who's never been in a car. And they would have no tools to relate to that. And so they could just quickly dismiss that as a sign of the last days or a confused person or, you know, some of the things we've done in the past to dismiss someone's lived experience. And so you know, that's not an academic approach as much, just some thoughts on how I'm managing um, that space. Any thoughts on that before we move on? Oh, I, I love that. I, I think that we need these analogies to build empathy for, for many who this is brand new to, right? And so I think that, that I, I love that explanation. I think it's a really, really good one. And I think that it helps to give some um, yeah, some, some, something that we can all empathize with as a kind of context for, for it. And I hope, I think that this is the new frontier, especially in LDS circles where, um, you know, we tend to lag behind broader cultural shifts, but, um, but I see the, the sort of um, uh, the ways in which younger people where I am are, are feeling totally comfortable in, in trans identity and trans, uh, trans issues are, are completely normalized in, in the communities that I belong to here. And um, the church is, I think, just on the cusp of kind of confronting these issues for the first time, and many members of the church are, especially in light of our history, our historical teachings on gender, um, which have not been um, open or empathetic to trans issues. And um, I, I'm glad that you're in conversation with people and that you're dealing with some of these issues on your show and so on, because I think that this is, for many Latter-day Saints, the kind of next frontier as uh, as we're kind of dealing with these broader cultural shifts around us to make sense of them, that, that our teachings are going to have to uh, account for that too. Yeah. And we, a uh, couple podcasts for our listeners. If you haven't, um, episode 254 is David Smirthwaite. He's a married father for a former bishop, um, married to his wife, committed to church and feels gender dysphoria. Um, he's felt this tremendous mismatch and, and transitioning for him then is just dealing with that. Every every transgender person, I'm mostly speaking to our listeners, not you, Taylor, just 
if you're feeling that car sickness or that dysphoria, you, you need to deal with that. And, and so everybody kind of deals with that in a different way. And every trans person's experience is different. And I encourage everybody to go slow and not necessarily adopt another person's story. He's needed to just deal with it in a way that, you know, he still identifies, uses his name, David, but he deals with gender dysphoria and has to manage that with some of the things he shares on the podcast. Same with episode 249, Bob Burgraff, whose wife and him were on the podcast. He is male and um, deals with gender dysphoria. So someone messaged me and um, recently and said, well, do you think there's just, do you think this is a sign of the last days that more people are sort of getting confused about their gender and more people are coming out? And my feeling is it's not. This is something that's been around for quite a while, but because we're maturing as a society, people can talk about how they feel and find more empathy and understanding versus dismissing their experience or their feelings, sort of like if all of us had never driven cars, we would not understand car sickness. And so I agree with you that we're learning, and it is sort of the you know, I I sometimes wonder in 20 years from now, if I'll walk out of a mo- movie with tears in my eyes, as we, as we have, t- as I'm look, listening to stories of trans people in the year 2020 and the difficult road they walked and the lack of perhaps understanding we had for them and the pain they feel. And in, t- you know, walking out of this movie in a couple decades, I wish I could have gone back to the year we're living in right now and just showed more empathy and more compassion, more understanding for people's lived experience. It doesn't seem like we err on compap, you know, I'm not going to get to heaven, Taylor, and find a God who says I was too kind, too loving, too compassionate, showed empathy. It just seems like there's not much doctrine that would support um, doing that. And we just honor how people feel. Talk more. We've got, you know, 10 minutes left. I want to make sure we get to anything that's important to you, either in your book or your other work you want our listeners to understand. Well, I just want to reflect on what you just said, because I think that that perspective of thinking about these things in historical perspective is another really interesting way of of building empathy and of kind of confronting the difficulties of, of this work. Um, and so the, the sort of you imagining yourself in the future 20 years and how you would react to the kinds of issues that we're facing now and that you want to be able to look back on yourself and see yourself as having um, behaved with integrity and, 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 and empathy and so on. Um, you know, and I would say to the person who's worried that these are the signs of the last days, they, they you know, we may be, well, we, we don't know exactly. But, uh, you know, when people said that women, when women first started wearing pants, outside of the, the, of the home, um, there were church members who said, ah, oh, these are signs of the last days, right? And when, when uh, uh, people of different races started to marry, there were church members who said, oh, look how wicked society is, and these are signs of the last days. We've often been very, very wrong about what we think are the wicked ills of the last days, and often those things which were considered to be so scary and so terrible uh, today, you know, to, 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 to not accept those things is, uh, you know, deeply, deeply wrong. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I think that that historical exercise that you imagine is, is just useful even just to know our own history, know the things that we have opposed in the past but now fully embrace and fully accept and have no problem with um, as maybe some kind of moral guide for 
uh, for addressing some of these complicated issues that we're working out in our community. I love that. And, you know, I sometimes go back in history to your point, and I think if I were, I can't remember exactly what year the Salem witch trials were going on. And I sometimes <laughs> wonder with the knowledge of that day, Taylor, what I would have said, um, where I would have been on that issue. My wife and I watched the movie Harriet with Harriet Tubman. And I wonder if I were um, white and a landowner in those days where I would have been on that issue. And it kind of scares me, Taylor, because I just mm -hmm. don't know if I would have been on the, it's just these kind of new things that face us today. And in this book I'm writing, I talk about Catherine Schweitzer in 1967 that ran the Boston Marathon, number 261, and the race officials ran after her trying to rip off the number because the assumption mm, yeah. of that day was women were too frail to run marathons. And I sort of think about God, and I think God knew Catherine Schweitzer could run a marathon. He was just waiting for us to turn to the science and turn to listen to women marathon runners. And now she ran the marathon 50 years later, same number, 261, and no one would think twice about a woman running a marathon. And so I like your perspective, too, that going back in history, um, it, it helps us to be better people. And even owning our own history as a church, how difficult it can be at times, I think makes us better Latter-day Saints and perhaps gives us more empathy, compassion, understanding um, for today. And I also like the grace you give our leaders there was, I wanted to mention that earlier is just understanding they're doing the best they can, but often just like Old Testament, New Testament leaders, we sometimes just make mistakes. I know in my leadership assignments, I've made mistakes. And as a father and a husband, and even what I do in this podcast, I know I make mistakes. So I think we have to give that grace to everybody. Uh, more thoughts you want to share? I'm talking now too much. I'm breaking my own rule, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> I love I, I love getting to hear your take on these things. So please don't don't uh, don't feel bad at all. I'm I'm happy to. Uh, I I totally agree with you on that point. I look back on things that I've said and done and 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 positions that I've held, and am embarrassed by those things and. Um, hope that uh, people would be generous enough to, to be forgiving and understanding as I've gone through on my own progress and certainly have more work to do on that front. And I hope to give that as well to everybody. You know, um, certainly there are, there are people who make us really mad <laughs> and who maybe deserve some scorn and shame for the, the things that they're doing, the ways that they're hurting people. And that's perhaps one tool that we have. Uh, it's probably, as I've thought about it, it's probably not a very effective tool. And there may be other ways that we can, uh, you know, following the advice of your podcast, love, listen, and learn to the people who, who most need to, to change sometimes, and, and maybe they won't, right. But, um, but I hope that there is some power in a kind of um, empathetic, uh, a kind of sincere, but, uh, but, but firm, um, ability to kind of communicate the seriousness of these issues to, to, to those who really need to hear them. And certainly in the kind of work that, that you do to facilitate just knowing these stories and getting to know the people who, who've been affected by these, uh, by, by these teachings, by the practices, by the culture that the church and that, that many of the communities within the church might, might reflect. 
and uh, working to to take those head on in a way that um, is a constructive approach to facilitate greater love and empathy and understanding. And, and I think that the, the the teachings that we all want to emulate and, and embody in our own lives. Um, and so I'm just really grateful for the kind of work that you do to, to reach uh, reach people who need to hear those stories. Thank you, Taylor. It's very kind of you. Um, when I think of the future on LGBTQ and the church, um, and I think about this on my long morning walks, I used to run, but I walk now. I sort of, and some of my listeners have heard me frame it up like a 40-chapter book. The church's relationship with its LGBTQ members is like a 40-chapter book, and I don't know what chapter we're in. Um, I don't... Um, and I sort of use, you know, the earlier chapters to, to talk about our past that sometimes is really difficult to, to be, understand and recognize the pain we've caused people because of the things we said in the past. So that's kind of the earlier chapters. And the future chapters represent what I think will continue to evolve in the church. And um, I've always, and I've kind of said chapter 40 to me is when a mom People ask me, well, is the doctrine going to change to get to chapter 40? And I say, I don't know. I'll leave that up to Heavenly Father. Um, I don't know His will for the church, I'm not, a, and I'm not a leader in the church. I don't sit on the general councils. I don't have standing. So maybe that's a cop-out for people when I say that, but I honestly don't know. But I do, instead of going down, the, will our doctrine change or not, I sort of go through but chapter 40 to me is like when a mother learns she has a 13-year-old gay son, she's not filled, filled, filled with fear in this life for that gay son or daughter in the church and society or the next life. And as you know, and our, many of our listeners know, that's one of the scariest things an LDS mom could learn is she's got an LGBTQ child. And I just feel like um, we have more work to do because I look at all alike unto God and I look at um, our doctrine that everybody should have the same balm of Gilead experience in our church. And I just recognize we're not there. So that's how I kind of frame up. And, and then, you know, then I kind of go, you know, some people really feel strongly our doctrine will change. And I've learned to just sort of say, I think that's fine. If I don't think that should disqualify someone from being, um, a temple attending LDS member, if they currently, if they support the current doctrine, but privately hope or even pray it will change to create uh, just more space for LGBTQ members. I think we've got to create space in our church for people who believe the doctrine will never change and support our leaders and people who believe it can and should, but continue to support our leaders and our current doctrine. Any thoughts on any of that, Taylor? I, I think you're absolutely right. I, 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 and like you, I, I, I have a kind of optimistic uh, faith and belief in a progressive view of history, uh, that things are going to get better. And at the same time as a historian, I have to acknowledge that sometimes they don't. Sometimes things get worse, you know. And I think that we do need to be prepared that it's possible that the church takes a uh, a hard line, you know. They 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 have. I think I think the way of describing how the church has done is a kind of slow accommodation. Um, and then they have changed on a number of issues. Uh, uh, certainly not to the extent that many uh, many people hope for and pray for. 
Um, but I think that uh, the people who are hoping and praying for those changes need to keep hoping and praying and need to keep doing the work within their sphere of influence to to enable those kinds of changes. Because if nobody is doing that work, then of course the changes are never going to happen either. Um, and as you said, you know, I, I'd rather err on the side of, of love than not, uh, too. If we're wrong uh, and it doesn't change, then that's okay. I still feel like I'll have a clean conscience for having worked for, for what I understand to be uh, good and for the benefit and blessing of, of people and, and, and um, their lives and making their lives possible. So, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely with you that you know, we, we, we have, we do have some limited agency and we do have some spheres of influence where we can, where we can work. And that certainly is within our own lives and, and at the very least, um, to do that kind of work. Um, and just for our listeners that may be listening, um, and I sometimes share these stories, uh, I got a DM direct message, um, and with permission, I've been sharing this on social media just to hear people's advice for this good man. And you understand these messages, Taylor. This won't surprise you. But I think it illustrates just how difficult a road, a road it can be for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. This is from a gay student at, at BYU. Um, and this is his message to me, just kind of opening his heart. And this is a, this really impacted me. I've thought, well, you know, I just recognize what a difficult road this good man's on. And here's his message to me. As I was driving home, I spent some time pondering, meditating in silence. I was overcome with a lot of emotional pain. My heart just wrenching how alone and out of place I feel right now. I still felt fear very trapped in the double bind of being a gay Latter-day Saint. When I think about simple things like studying the scriptures and praying, I feel severe guilt and shame about who I am and the simple fact that I want to find love and to be loved and not spend my life alone. So I don't know if you've got any comments to that good man who's um, the double bind, I think, represents his love for the church. Um, he's a returned missionary and deeply committed to church, but the, but he, but the fact he would just, like all of us, would love to spend his life with somebody and to share his life with somebody. And I think that message does a good job of illustrating just the tremendous challenge our, our LGBTQ members face. Any thoughts on that, Taylor? That, that's exactly the conflict. And as much as, again, this sort of slow accommodation that the church has made to at least uh, allow church members to be out in the Congress, that was something they used to not be able to do, right? Or to, you know, not try to cure people, right? Uh, I mean, those, those are changes that I think we want to acknowledge, but they don't get to the fundamental issue of a universal desire that people have to form lasting, loving relationships with people. And, um, and we don't, we don't have, uh, we don't have a, a, a satisfying answer to that question yet for our um, LGBT brothers and sisters, and I hope that we I hope that we keep working at that because that's the conflict that that they can't be resolved for 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 many people, many young people especially who have grown up now in a world where same sex marriage is legal and normalized, and these relationships are depicted on TV and they see as real. You know, we could we could it's a possibility that wasn't available before, and um, 
and the 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 denial that that people have to enforce on themselves in order to choose really between the 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 love for the the, the church, the love for their families, the love for the the gospel communities that they belong to, and the desire to form one of the the most fundamental aspects of what it means to be human: these long lasting relationships of care and trust and love. Um, and I hope that we, I hope that we can give a satisfactory answer to, to that question at some point. That's a very good response. Um, anything else you'd like to share, Taylor? I am just very grateful for this opportunity that we've had to talk. I hope that it's been useful. I, I just like you, I worry about I ramble on too much too. So, you know, <laughs> so thanks you don't. for putting up with You're uh, great. My... <laughs> But uh, no, I, I appreciate it. It's been a really good conversation. Tell our listeners the name of your book and again, and where they could find it. Sure. The book is Tabernacles of Clay, Gender and Sexuality in Modern Mormonism. You can find it wherever books are sold on Amazon and so so much so forth. It's uh, also sold at the University of North Carolina Press, which is the publishing uh, agent for the for the press right now for 40% off if you happen to want to get a little bit of a deal on it. So if you go to, if you Google Tabernacles of Clay, UNC Press, uh, the website will come up and you can get a, a pretty good discount on it right now. So thank you, Dr. Taylor Petrie, for being on the podcast. People can find you on Twitter at Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, Petrie, P-E-T-R-E-Y, um, you're also the editor of Dialogue. That's a whole other wonderful work you're doing to bring more understanding. And I know you're on Facebook, so I encourage everybody to co connect with Taylor and the work he's doing to bring more understanding. And, and knowledge and understanding helps lift burdens, particularly of LGBTQ people, so we can better understand their road and support them. And understanding our history, I think, um, is a great thing. I think that gives us... Um, better tools to help and um, others. And, and I, I, so I look at owning our history as a term that someone shared with me a few years ago, Taylor, and I really like that term of owning our history and understanding it. And that gives me more power and more power, not in a bad way, but just more, um, I just love, since I'm a deeply committed Latter-day Saint, to know my history. And um, I'm glad to understand more about it. And I'm glad for people that have expertise like you have and others coming on the podcast and writing books and all the good work you're doing. So thank you, Taylor Petrie. And thank you, our listeners. This is Richard Osser signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.